Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good morning. Happy President's Day weekend. Let's get to it. Genesis chapter 2 is where we find ourselves today. If you have a Bible, we'd love for you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, as always, uh, we like to mention that we have Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, and we'd love for you to follow along. Maybe you forgot your Bible today, or maybe you just don't have one. We would love for you to take that Bible and make it your own. And primarily today, we will be in Genesis chapter 2. We've started a, a series of messages through the first 12 chapters of Genesis as we kicked it off last week, looked at chapter 1. Today we're going to be in primarily Genesis chapter 2, although we're going to kind of look back at a few verses in Genesis 1 as a setup for our passage today. And so, again, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that Bible and keep it as our gift to you. And if you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, um, you can find Genesis chapter 2 on page 2. Regardless of what type of Bible, there's two kind of two different types of the same versions, but they're two different editions, and so um, we're making it easy on you there. So let's, let's look at that. Now, um, now, you'll notice here in just a moment as we read Genesis chapter 2 that it's, it's, it's a bit of a repeat in a way of what happens in Genesis 1 that we looked at last week where there's this great act of God's creation of the universe. And if you missed last week or if you were not able to take down all the notes, the audio and all the notes are on the website, and again, will be the case with, with today. It seems like these first few chapters of Genesis are kind of a heavy in, in some, some points that we want to make, and so if you're not used to taking notes and, and you want to just kind of relax and just take in this passage and the message, you can, you can find the notes and everything that will be on the screen on the internet afterwards. But what's happening in Genesis chapter 2 is it's kind of like a like a map, like Rand McNally map. You know how you open it up and you'd, you'd find the state of Georgia and it'd have the whole state? And then maybe down in the little corner of that same page, there might be a little, like a little blow up that's just a, a major city like Atlanta. And it gives you kind of a blow up of what's going on in the, the roads and the map of that particular city. And Genesis 2 is, is kind of like that. It's like God zooming down into his special creation of mankind, of men and women, of Adam and Eve. And so Genesis 2, in a sense, is repeating a lot of what happens in Genesis 1, but it's like zooming down in on God's special creation of mankind. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look back in Genesis 1 in just a second, but primarily we're going to pick up where we left off last week, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 25 to the end of the chapter. And I've got three points. We're going to hang everything that we're looking at today on three points. So I'm going to give you the outline right up front, okay? So here it is. It's up on the screen. And then we're going to work back through it. So even if you can't um, write everything down right now, that's okay. I'm giving this to you to give you comfort that when we're in the midway through this, you're wondering, oh my gosh, when is he going to wrap this up? I'm giving this to you, you kind of like a frame, like a road map, so that I'm trying to dispel your anxiousness midway through, because I know that's just a natural part of being in an audience. When is this going to end? Well, you're going to be able to figure that out. So here's the three points. The first point is that God creates man and breathes life into him. Okay, we're going to look at what that 
that means, and we're going to unpack that. The second point that we're going to look at in the middle of Genesis 2 is God creates man to work and obey. He gives man a task, and he gives God a command. Or he, gives, he gives man a task, and he gives man a command. And then point number three, which we'll spend um, a good bit of time on, is that God creates man and women to complement one another. Now notice the spelling of complement there. It's complement, C-O-M-P-L-E, not I. So it doesn't mean that men and women were like supposed to give each other encouraging statements like, you smell good, or, you know, your outfit outfit looks nice tonight, honey, or you can do lots of push-ups. You know, not, those are helpful things maybe in relationship between, it's, it's good for a men and women to complement each other, but what we're looking at here is, as Will read for us this morning, that men and women complement each other. They work together as God's creation to uh, fill one another out as, as God's image on this earth. So, uh, that's our, that's our, our roadmap this morning, and then we'll, we'll fill in the blanks. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that we are your people that can come and sing freely, without reservation. That we can sing about Jesus and his work on the cross. And we can come and open up your word and read it and proclaim it and preach it boldly without again, without hitch or reservation or fear. We realize that there are many brothers and sisters in Christ around this world who cannot do that this morning. They are meeting underground, uh, under the cover of darkness, behind locked doors, and we pray for them. We, we pray that you would encourage them and give them boldness and courage. There is something better than this life. Faithfulness to you and life with you forever is better than, than political freedom on, in this life. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters persecuted around the earth for the name of Jesus. And we come now asking that you would help us to learn from your word, to behold wonderful things out of your word. As we look at your special creation of mankind, I pray that you would give us wisdom, even as Christians, to be able to refute the, the arguments in our culture that exalt themselves against your word and your knowledge. I pray that we would be equipped more to articulate biblical truth as a result of this morning. And I pray for my, my friends that are in this room that have not yet trusted in Christ. I know that certainly with a crowd like this, there are people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus. Maybe they think they are, but they, they haven't truly trusted in Christ. Maybe they're trusting in some outward form or religion or self-righteousness. God, would you today give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe the good news of the gospel, even as we're looking at creation. Ultimately, it's all about what you have done to save a people for yourself through Jesus. I pray for my friends that are in this room that may not be Christians and they know themselves to not be trusting in Christ and they're here by the invitation of a friend or just investigating what it means to be a believer in Jesus. I pray, God, that you would melt their hearts and that you would give them a heart to believe in Christ. And I pray, God, that you would be glorified 
and your people would be encouraged today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, before we get into Genesis 2, let's look back at Genesis 1 and starting in verse 26, what we, which we read last week, which we didn't really get into this really important phrase that we've alluded to already several times this morning. And starting in verse 6 there, and this is the, the sixth day of creation that God has, has, has created the heavens and the earth, and we've looked at the first five days, and then we're zooming in on, on to day six there. Verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's this phrase the, that mankind has been made in the image of God. He's been made male and female in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, this has been a phrase that books have been written about, and, and we won't take the time to unpack all of the discussions and the history of the church of what this phrase mean, means, but let me just sort of condense it down into that this, I think, means that not that man has been made like, like God looks like us necessarily in a physical form, although God becomes man and takes on flesh in the form of God the Son, Christ, but it means that man is like God, and he represents God in that man is given to, as we've read there, have dominion over the earth. So man is to, to rule or to manage God's creation. He's to represent, he's to be a reflection of God to creation. And he is to resemble God, to be like a, an image of God. And so man, unlike other created beings and unlike animals, has a certain moral aspect to him. He has an inner sense of, of right and wrong. Every person that's ever been created, no matter how evil they may be, has an inner sense of, of right and wrong, even if that inner sense is askew or corrupted. And certainly it is in all of us after the fall, which we'll get into next week. Man, unlike any other created creature, has a spiritual aspect to him. It enables us to, to relate to God. Man has a mental aspect, an ability to reason and think logically and Certainly, to some degree, there are some animals in creation that do as well. But on a much higher level, man has this mental capacity to reason and think logically. And then mankind, men and women, have a, a relational aspect to us unlike any other creature. They were created for complex and deep and fulfilling community. Why is understanding that mankind is made in the image of God so important before we get into chapter 2 and in the rest of the Bible. Because remember what we talked about last week, that really understanding the Bible rightly, it, it really rests on the truths that we're going to look at in these first 12 chapters of Genesis. And one of these critical truths is understanding the nature of what it means to be human, that all of us are created in the image of God, even after the fall, which we're going to read about next week, 
mankind still to some degree retains this status of being created in the image of God, even though it's marred severely by sin and renders mankind completely unable to make himself right with God. Because we see in Genesis 5 and Genesis 9, there is a a repeating of this phrase that God has created mankind in his image. And so we see that even after the fall, mankind still bears this likeness of God, again, even though it's marred by sin. So, so why is this so important? I think this has profound implications then for us as to how we should treat all people, even the worst of people, even the most different of people like us, and even the weakest of people. So I think this has profound implications as to how we treat, let's just say, for example, the elderly they're not unimportant. They are created in the image of God. It has profound implications on how we treat the unborn. They are people created in the image of God. It has profound implications on how we view other cultures like, unlike us. It means that every culture, not just America, and other, this may be shocking to you, Other parts of the United States, not just the Deep South, bear the image and likeness of God. Other ethnicities, other languages, bear the image of likeness of God. Again, like all humanity, marred, fallen, completely unable to make itself right with God apart from God's saving grace. So do you see the profound implications? America is not... We're not better than other people, right? No, no one ethnicity is superior to other people, to other ethnicities. No particular age of a person is superior to another. And it means that even fallen people, even the worst of people, even though it means that I think righteously as we read in the New Testament, we have grounds to punish them and the government should at times punish them, that there is this dignity that every human being should be, should be treated with. We'll get into that more as we continue through Genesis. Okay, so that's just a little background on the image of God. Now it gets us into to chapter 2 and verse 4. So here's point number 1 that I want us to see that we, that we mentioned at the beginning. God creates man and breathes life into him. God creates man. And when I say man, I'm making that the, the, the word for men and women, mankind. God creates man and breathes life into him. Let's start reading, and in, in, I'll start reading in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." Okay, so there's a couple sub-points here that I want you to, to see and notice under this, this big point of God creating man and breathing life into him. First 
is that I think the truths implicit in just these few verses exclude the possibility of, of evolution. And so point number one here under this, this larger point is that God creates man supernaturally and distinctly not through evolution. Do you see that, that verse 7 there? It says that God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So we see this definitive, distinct act where God is forming man, just like piling up some dirt that he created, like this potter in the clay, molding it together, and then breathing life into it. Now you might say, well, Brad, that's just, you know, that's maybe just metaphorical um, analogy type language. It's not to be taken literally. Okay, that, that may be possible. But that's not what the rest of the Bible thinks about this scripture. Okay? So we need to interpret the Bible uh, by other passages in the Bible. So let's, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Uh, we'll have it up on the screen. This is an incredibly important passage. I want you to see that if you um, don't realize that God specifically and distinctly created Adam and Eve as the first two historical real people that the argument of the rest of the Bible, the argument of the gospel, the argument of Paul in the New Testament falls apart. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that Paul is a better Old Testament scholar than you and me. Like Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Old Testament. And this is what the Holy Spirit put in the mind of Paul to write in Romans chapter 5 about mankind. And here, let me set this argument up, because this is super important. We, we referred to it a little bit last week, is that Paul is saying that the idea of the grace that comes to us through Jesus, the argument that he's making in Romans 5 of the gospel, of grace coming through Jesus, is parallel to the fact that sin has come to us through Adam, okay? So Paul is resting his argument on, we are sinners because we are children of Adam. There's no escaping it. Like some of us are obvious public sinners and we beat people up and steal stuff and rob banks and blow up cars and fly planes into buildings or we're just self-righteous little moralist church kids that haven't trusted in Christ. We're trusting in ourselves. But all of us come from the same head, the same fountain, Adam. And likewise, all of salvation, anybody that is ever a Christian, comes to salvation, comes to God the Father, reconciliation through one fountain, Jesus. That's the argument that Paul is making in Romans 5. So let me read Romans 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So do you see? Paul is making the argument that Adam is like our head. He's our head. He's our representative. Look at verse 17 of Romans 5. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And, there, and then in verse 18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass 
led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So do you see the, the logic that Paul is basing this, the gospel on? He's saying that Christ is the only way. All that are in Christ receive the grace of Christ. And he's building that logic of the fact that we are, if we're in Christ and if we're saved, Jesus is our head. He's our fountain. He's the only fountain of salvation. He's basing that logic on the fact that all of us are in Adam and he's the fountain of human nature, which is sin. So we are sinners. We are born sinners, right? We're born by nature sinners, by nature and by choice. We have this spiritual DNA, just like we have like a physical DNA that we pass down to our children, right? There's a spiritual DNA that's passed down to us and we are by nature sinners. So you may say, well, uh, man was messed up from the beginning. No, so, you know, you may argue for ev- evolution and say, well, you know, we, we, man has evolved and he's been kind of jacked up and God knew it and so he just, you know, created, he just created this, this way of the gospel and no, Remember that God created creation very good. So man was originally created very good. This sin doesn't come in until Genesis 3. And that's the argument of Paul in Romans 5, is that sin has entered in through a specific man. So this is important for us to realize that God supernaturally and distinctly creates mankind, a real historical figure, Adam and Eve. Regardless of what you believe about the age of the earth, I think you need to believe that, that Adam and Eve were real people. And notice also the second point that I want you to see under this this larger point of God creating man and breathing life into him is that God creates man not as a distant creator, but as a personal Lord. God creates man not as a distant creator, but as a personal Lord. So there's been this transition here that I want us to see in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, did you notice that every time that the word God is mentioned. It's just this word God. It stands alone, God. And the, the word is Elohim. It's actually the plural of the word El. So it's like this plural, this triune God is revealing himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, even in creation in the first chapter of Genesis. But this word for God in Genesis chapter 1 is, just emphasizes his awesome power as creator. But then look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 again, where it says that, that, that uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And now for the rest of chapter 2, not just the word God, but this phrase, the Lord God, is mentioned as it prepares us to see God especially creating mankind. And what is that word, Lord? What's the, what's the word there? You see, most, in most of your Bibles, it's like all capitals, L-O-R-D. And that is this word, Yahweh. And so what that word emphasizes is that God has a covenantal relationship with his people. So he's saying, I am the Lord. I'm not just this powerful, distant creator, but I am this personal covenant God. So you see there's been a a transition here from this creator who's over creation in Genesis chapter 1 to this personal covenantal God who is the father creator of his creation in Genesis chapter 2. So God creates man not as a 
distant creator, but as a personal Lord. And just to, just to note, just to note, next week this is going to become really important because in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan comes to tempt Eve, the word or the name that he refers to God is not Lord God, this personal, good, gracious Father, but just God, this distant creator, right? So even there in Genesis 3, which we'll see at next week, Satan is trying to, to like disfigure and to cloud our perception of who God is. God is not just our creator. He is our father. He's good. He's personal. He's involved. And he cares for us. And he knows us. So that takes us to the next point. So point number one is God creates man and breathes life into him. And now the next block, verses 8 through 17. And the point here I want us to see is that God creates man to work and obey. God creates man to work and obey. Let's read verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. More on those trees in, in just a moment. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so a couple things I want us to see here under this large point of God creates man to work and obey. Point number one is that man's work is to wisely manage and steward God's creation. Again, we read it in our confession of faith at the beginning. You just have this sense that the earth is waiting to be led, waiting to be mastered and managed and worked. There was no man to work the ground, is what it says in verse 5. So there's kind of this this posture of waiting to be led. It's like a, a wild horse that God has put in a fenced pasture and it's waiting to be tamed and saddled by mankind. So God calls, notice, this is important, notice that God calls man to work before the fall. So work is good. God works and is glorified when we work. Work is commanded before the fall. But you wouldn't get that impression if you just kind of look at Facebook timeline on Monday. It's Monday. I hate my life. Well, praise God, brother. <laughs> That's encouraging and commendable and makes me want to just jump up and follow you to church. <laughs> and certainly our work is marred by the fall. But don't have this conception like work is part of the curse. 
The toil that we have in our work is part of the consequence of the fall. But work is good. Like, work is good. Colossians 3, verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I think we fall off, I think, into one of two ditches when we think about work. I think we fall off in either making work an idol, I-D-O-L, like something that we kind of worship. It's an idol of success that drives us to self-absorption, and so we climb the corporate ladder. Or we fall off on the other side of the ditch of, of like a, a cynicism towards work, an idleness, I-D-L-E, like we're just lazy. And, and I think if I could just push a little bit on this generation, um, I think that this is probably what many young people are prone to, kind of a, a, a cynicism about work. You, you've grown up on sitcoms like The Office that have this kind of undercurrent of sort of mundane purposelessness. And so every, kind of, everything's sort of a cynical joke. You know, and you're just in a cubicle, and you're just kind of punching a ticket, and it's mindless. And do you realize that, that you're like, you're giving in. If you let kind of that become sort of your default mode, you're giving in to this very broken view of how you were created as a Christian. So you may find yourself for this particular time in your life in a cubicle where the work is not particularly stimulating. Or you may find yourself in a platoon of men at Fort Benning where the platoon sergeant is a knucklehead and your lieutenant couldn't find his way out of a wet paper sack. Or you may just find yourself at TSIS or CB&T and you're frustrated because everybody above you is a self-absorbed jerk and it just seems like you're always getting passed over. Or you just find yourself in a job that just doesn't seem to meet the qualifications that you have. Your reasons for not being you know, satisfied may be valid. But friends, do you realize that God, in Acts chapter 17, through the Apostle Paul, preaches this beautiful message on Mars Hill. And he says that God has predetermined the boundaries of our habitations. And where we should dwell so that we might long for him. And be a witness for him. So God has, in this particular time in your life, put you in that cubicle, put you in that platoon, put you in that boardroom, put you in that job that's not quite ideal for you. Maybe not to stay there forever, but not to have a negative attitude to where the aroma that comes out of you is just, I hate life. Right? I mean, isn't this just kind of the the spirit of our age? cynicism, and God is calling us to be people that work and that manage and steward our particular situation, potentially maybe for the advancement so that we move on, but so that God receives glory in our situation. Another just little application here, and I'm, I mean, I'm I may get some emails for this, and so if you have a problem with this, you can email me at robert at insidecrosspoint.com. <laughs> but notice that God gives us the task to subdue the world in creation, not worship it, right? 
So I think this is where kind of environmentalism, and by environmentalism, I mean sort of the ideology, the political movement of, of environmentalism, which I think even some younger Christians get kind of swept up in. I think this is where they get it wrong. Yes, we should steward creation well and manage it with care and not recklessness, but not to the point where the creation becomes our idol or our God. Friends, there are Christians that care more about the ozone and recycling and being green than they do the unborn. I'm not saying that we shouldn't recycle. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about being green. and I'm not saying that I want manatees to be chopped up by blades in the Everglades. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we should go club baby seals and be mean to animals and fight pit bulls. I'm not saying that. But friends, do you see that like the fervor in our culture? It's like it's worshiping the created thing. And, and I think some Christians even get caught up in these movements. And there's a sense in which that's good stewardship. But we shouldn't care more about the environment than we do about people, about the unborn or the elderly or people of other cultures. So man's work is to wisely manage and steward creation. And then I want you to see this before we end on the third point is that point number two under this larger point, God commands, God's commands lead us to abundant provision, joy, and life. What about these trees? Do you notice those two trees that are mentioned there? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then the tree of life? I don't think they're magic trees. And I don't think that, this isn't like, you know, something from the Lord of the Rings or Hobbit. Like there's some shining tree, you know, somewhere in the Middle East that we haven't discovered yet or whatever, or that there was some sort of magic tree. I think it was actually a tree, but I think what's going on here is that God is focalizing his test of man on a tree, and he's using the fruit of this tree as a point of obedience. He could have well just have said, look, here's a river over here. Don't drink of that one particular river. All these other rivers you can swim in and drink from. So don't get too caught up in like some magic apple although I think it was a physical tree and a physical piece of fruit that God is commanding them to eat or not eat. But what's going on here is that God is giving man a test. He's commanding him, and he's saying, don't do this one little thing right here, but everything else is for you to richly enjoy. And then we'll see this in, in Genesis chapter 3, that the enemy, when he comes and tempts mankind, is wanting to turn that up and to create God in our minds. as like a stingy God who's wanting to withhold joy. Do you see the trick? You see the trick? God is not after our clenched fist, teeth-grinding obedience. God is for our joy according to his command. And he can command because he created us. Because he is the author. Because he is the center. And he creates us for his glory, not for ours. And so, 
I want us to see this because I think this is so important in just understanding how to fight sin, that God is not against our joy. He's all for it, but he gives us clear commands as to how to lead us into that pathway of joy. God, young man, God is not against your joy. He's for it. And when he says you can't touch any woman until you give yourself to her in marriage, it's not because giving yourself away before you are married is somehow more joyful and you need to grit your teeth and tuck your shirt in and comb your hair and be a good little church boy and be like Ned Flanders. No, he's leading you into true joy. He knows knows that true joy and true satisfaction and true safety is found in his way. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this, You make me to know the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, we, could, we could spend days thinking about that. But let's keep going. It brings us to our third and final point. God creates man and woman to complement one another. God creates man and woman to complement one another. Let's read. Let me read in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Isn't that just an amazing scene? I mean, just like a, a procession of animals in front of Adam. Elephant. Giraffe, I mean, lion, tiger, cat. I mean, just unbelievable what what that scene must have been like. Not in English. I don't think Adam spoke English. (laughs) Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept... He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. What a nap. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine? Oh, my gosh. What a nap. Isn't it weird how the older you get, like you just, when you're younger, you, you just resist sleep. And then the older you get, you just want sleep, but sometimes you just can't. Is there nothing better than a mid-afternoon nap on a Sunday? I'm, I'm digressing. I'm sorry. I'm just... <laughs> but what a nap. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. <laughs> Can you imagine waking up from that? Whoa! 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 What what happened? (laughs) Verse 23, Then the man said, He spoke words to name the animals, but these are the first recorded words we have, Adam. Then the man said, And this is a, in the Hebrew, it's so rich, it's, it's like a poem, it's a song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Oh, what a scene. So a few points I want us to see 
under this point of God creating man and woman to complement one another, and then we'll be done. First is, is that men and women share God's image equally. Remember what we read at the beginning in Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So we believe that men and women equally share God's image and are in essence and value and personhood just as valuable before the Lord as one another. So men are not more important than women, and likewise women are not more important than men. They share God's image equally. But we see clearly also here and then in the rest of the scriptures that God creates Adam and men after him to lead and Eve and then women after her to help. So God creates Adam to be the humble, selfless leader, and Eve to be the gracious helper. Why doesn't he create Adam and Eve simultaneously at the same time? I think he doesn't create them at the same time, although he could have, is because he's making a picture here that Adam is to be the leader. He's created first, not because he is more important, but because he has a different role, and he is to be the head, the leader, and the wife, the woman, is to to follow him. Now, I realize that is, for some people in our culture, and maybe some people in this room, really controversial and really difficult to accept. But let me fast forward to the New Testament, and if you have a a problem with that word of, of maybe submission or a man being the leader and a woman being the helper, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, and notice the logic that the Apostle Paul builds on this this created order. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So sometimes the objection is, well, the order of human relationships that we see in the Bible, man being the head and wife being the helper, is, is because of the, you know, the primitive cultures or is because of the, the messed up cities and cultures that Paul was planting churches in. So it doesn't have like a, a timeless application. And now we live in the modern age. And so you know, these sort of role distinctions don't matter. But that's not what, what Paul is basing his his relationship between men and women on here. So do you see what he's doing? He's saying that just as Christ is the head of a man, so a man is the head of his woman. And if you're a woman and you grit your teeth at that, notice then what Paul compares that to next. He says just as Christ is, is under the Father. So if you're a woman and, and it, it sort of grates on your nerves... To have your man, not all men, but a man that you are married to or your father to be your functional head to protect you, you're being compared to Jesus. (laughs) And that's a good thing. So just as the father and the son have this beautiful, mutually submissive relationship, but the father is under the authority of the son, the woman is under the authority of her husband or her father. Do you see that? So don't grit your teeth, dear sister, because you are being compared to the Trinity. How beautiful is that? It's beautiful. 
And why did Eve, we said, why did he not just create them simultaneous, simultaneously to show this order? And why did, why did Eve have to come from Adam, out of his rib? Why not just separate? Why not just make her second out of the ground as well? well? I think there's something that God is teaching us here is that God creates men and women to be marvelously interdependent on each other. Notice in verse, uh, that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12, this, Paul continues this, and he says this, Nevertheless, in the, woman, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. And so, there's this interdependence. Men are to be the humble, Christ-like leaders. They are to lead, sacrifice, provide, and protect. And the women are to joyfully follow along with the husband's leadership. Now, we know that the fall comes in Genesis 3, and all of this gets messed up. And now our work is to get back to God's created order. As we are saved in Christ, we are now working back towards God's original intention of mankind. But just a few points of application. Men, do you recognize your tendency to not lead and live and serve your wife and really women in general in this way? I think probably the number one problem in our culture And probably the number one problem in this church is passive, unengaged, self-absorbed men. The num thank you, brother. I'll say it one more time. The number one problem in our culture, and the number one problem in this church, and I think in every church, and in every culture, so I'm not just singling out cross point, is passive, unengaged, self-absorbed. Men. A man is called to lead. He's called, called to protect. He's called to initiate. He's called to lay down his life, not lord his physical strength or authority over a woman, and to pave a way for her to joyfully follow his leadership. That brings us to the third and final subpoint under this is that God establishes marriage to be a one flesh union that displays the gospel. Let me read those last two verses again. God just sort of fast forwards here. This is God speaking through Moses to write these first five books of the Bible. And so this is God really giving Moses these words. And God, before we even have fathers and mothers, before we even have children, he's using this phrase father and mother And he institutes the first marriage, not just for men and women and their joy, but to display something far more eternal, which we'll look at in just a second. So verse 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Okay, so what's happening here is that these two that were created distinctly, one from another, now God is saying that he's putting them together in this marital relationship as a man and a woman, as a husband and a wife, and these two are becoming one. And so then let's, let's fast forward to Ephesians 5, where Paul picks up on this same verse, where I want you to see this 
this connection between this first marriage and all marriage and two becoming one and the connection between the only news that really matters, which is the gospel. So this is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Listen to this. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall, and Paul's quoting now these two verses in Genesis at the end of chapter 2 that we just read, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, this is what salvation is. You are dead in your sins. You are hopelessly lost. You are completely unable to find yourself, find your way back to God. You can't do anything to reconcile yourself to him. And the good news of the gospel is that when God intends to save a person, and this may be you in this room right now, this very moment, God causes the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross which where Jesus became man, lived a perfect life, where you rebelled, where I rebelled, Jesus completely obeyed, perfect righteousness, perfect human, perfect God, and lays down his life on the cross to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the holy justice of God that is barreling down on every human being. And those that are in Christ, Jesus absorbs that punishment and defeats death and sin on the cross and rises again in victory over the sin that we'll read about in Genesis 3 that completely wrecked humanity. And Jesus now rises, takes our punishment in our place, defeats death, sin, and the consequences, reunites us with God, reconciles us to God, and commands all people everywhere to repent and not trust in themselves, not trust in their good works, but to believe in what he has done. And then when he saves them, he unites himself to them. He says, now you, church, are part of my body. Christ is in us. He, we are in him, and we are now united to Christ with Christ. So salvation is not just the uttering of like a little prayer that gets you into heaven and Jesus is way up there and now we have to figure out the rest of our life. No, we are united with Christ. We are now in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're in Christ. He's in us. That's the gospel. And Paul is saying, here's the logic now, That marriage between a man and a woman is to display that, is to image that. And when a man and a woman marry one another in God, they become one. They become one body. And this relationship is not just for their joy or their mutual fulfillment, although it should lead to all of those things, but it is to reflect Christ's relationship with his people, his bride, the church. And so marriage is given ultimately not for us. It's given to reflect Christ and his wife, 
his bride, the church, which is all those who have ever trusted in Jesus. And so, friends, that's why marriage is so important. I think that's why we should not, we should struggle and strain and strive to not end our marriages and break our marriages. Because when we do, we tear, we rip apart the one flesh union that God is intending to reflect his union with his bride, the church. Do you see what's happening here even in the first few chapters of Genesis? God is setting us up for the gospel. So here's the question. Are are you in Christ? Are you united to Christ in that way? Is he yours? Are you his? That's what you were created for. If you find yourself maybe in these past few minutes to not be a Christian, the good news of the gospel is not to do this or to do that. Is to look to Jesus and trust in him by faith. Unite yourself to Christ and his purpose and his glory for you by looking away from yourself and looking to Jesus in faith. Do that even now, friend. And if you don't fully understand that and you maybe need somebody to talk to you in just a moment after we pray and respond, you're welcome to come talk with one of the pastors or a person that you know to be a Christian. Ask them what it means to trust in Christ truly to be a Christian, to unite yourself to Christ in covenant relationship and be saved. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to your words, and these are monumental truths, and we've skimmed over a good many of them in, in Genesis 2. Lord, I pray for the Christians in this room that they would be encouraged to know that you not just as a distant creator God, but as a personal, loving, covenantal God have created us for your glory and our joy. You've created us to work. You've created us to steward and to lead and to manage your creation. You've created us to obey you. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed, and we all, in line with them, because it's our nature, have disobeyed as well. But you have provided a way back to us through Christ. You became flesh, and you dwelt among us, and you laid down your life for us. And you've united yourself to your people. You've taken a bride for yourself, and you've joined yourself to her. And we must turn away from our own righteousness and turn away from our own broken pleasures and unite ourselves to you by faith in what Jesus has done. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's not done that, I pray, God, that you would give them the grace and the eyes and ears to hear and see and trust and do that even now. Lord, for the Christians in this room who might be involved in a difficult marriage. Lord, would you help them see that there's something bigger going on than their personal contentment? 
that their marriage exists for something more than their own happiness. Would you give them endurance? Would you give them the courage to seek wise counsel? And Lord, would you reconcile? Would you restore? Would you help that marriage stay together? so that that one flesh is not torn into two, so that even in difficulty, trial, and stress, that marriage can reflect and glorify the good news of what God has done in Christ for his bride, the church. Lord, would you do that? Would you encourage your people as we now respond? In Jesus' name, amen.